<laughs> a history of comedy. It's several chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to another episode of A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive. In this podcast, in each episode, we pick out just one item from the archive and talk about it in depth to try and pull out what's significant about it in terms of the art and craft of stand-up comedy and how it relates to comedy history. I'm Ollie Double. Uh, I'm joined by my colleague Elspeth Miller and we are very much the Kermit and Miss Piggy of comedy archiving. Good, yep. <laughs> so, Although yeah. I never really, I never really got into the Muppets. Like, oh, a, uh, yeah, I know. I was, a, I was an obsessive fan really? of the Muppets when I was a child, yeah. Used to have a Muppet show annual and all yeah. kinds of things. The, the two vinyl LPs, the first two wow. ones they released. So I don't even think I've seen a Muppet film, like... Oh, actually, know, the Mupp- not even like the Christmas Carol one, which is going to be really good, isn't it? Yeah, Apparently. it's good. But, I, but the the, the recent-ish uh, one that they had a couple of recent films that came out, and the first one in particular is very enjoyable. So that's my tip for the top. Okay. <laughs> the original Kermit, I believe, I'm right in saying, was made by Jim Henson from uh, one of his mum's old coats. Oh. Yeah. None of which is anything to do with today's mm. episode, and nor is the fact that there are people drilling outside, which may mar your enjoyment of the audio aspects of this podcast, but hopefully not the content. So what is it we're going to be talking about today? What's the item for today, Elspeth? Okay, the item of today is a brown paper bag. Can I just but, stop you there? Yeah. <laughs> so the item for today in our comedy podcast is a brown paper bag. How interesting yes. is that? It's very interesting. It's really cool, actually. So it's from Linda Smith's collection, and it's not just a brown paper bag. Obviously, it's it's a brown paper bag, like you you know, like you put your vegetables, mushrooms in, yeah. at the market or something. But it's kind of like a flyer, sort of. It's a publicity material for a show, an Edinburgh show. Um, which was made up of three different acts, um, John Hegley and the Popticians, Otis Cannelloni and the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. And it was kind of a, given out kind of before the show, so it was an, an Edinburgh run, a run of shows. And the nice thing about it is kind of that audience sort of participation, kind of there's an audience angle to it. And then it's not just a flyer, but apparently if you took this bag along to the show, well, you'll get some sweets. Yeah. So it says, if you produce this lucky bag at the door, we will put some nice little sweeties in it for you to eat during the show, brackets, or after the show, if the person next to you looks like they do not like rustling and chewing sounds, and they might want to smack you in the gob. (laughs) Close brackets. (laughs) For a start, it's it's audience-related, because this was uh, submitted not by John, but by Linda Smith. Yeah, so it's from a folder of material, a folder of other flyers, really, and posters, which... Linda's not on, so we kind of presume, and we can ask Warren, um, that she kind of went along along to these shows. Right, so so this is, uh, you say ask Warren, Warren oh, being sorry, Warren, Warren Lakin. Lakin who yeah. deposited the collection. Yeah, yeah, okay, so should we have a quick look at some of the other leaflets? Yeah, so it's um, leaflets and flyers from a range of years, actually, but it's mainly the 80s through to the early 90s. Um, and that's an interesting one, Fool's, Fool's yeah. Paradise. Now, the reason that's interesting to me is because that was in Sheffield, mm-hmm. and I 
was a, a regular audience member there. I saw almost all the shows in the first couple okay. of years. And in fact, two different friends of mine went through phases as being regular compares for that club. And I used to work with them on their material in the afternoon. There was a guy called Phil D. Rogers and a guy called Roger Monkhouse who still mm-hmm. works on the comedy circuit. And uh, I remember some of those gigs, actually. You've got, um, uh, I think I remember the Mark Steele one. Definitely remember the Jack D one. He, Jack D used to have this brilliant joke. You have to be of a certain age to get it, though. When he, In his early act, he had this joke. Um, when I was a child, I had something that was shown on... I made something that was shown on Blue Peter, a badly vandalised garden. Now, mm-hmm. the thing is, in the 70s, there was this moment where the Blue Peter Italian sunken garden was vandalised. They did a whole episode on on it clearing up, talk about how horrible it was, and a nation of children were grieving for this vandalised garden. So to to claim responsibility for that (laughs) is a really funny joke, especially because it really works with Jack D's persona. Mm. And I I noticed if you you go to the back, it's got um, upcoming shows, and it's got Ken Campbell and Tony Allen. I remember that show really well. Ken Campbell didn't, because it was advertised as a stand-up gig, I remember it didn't work perfectly well. Some people were just a bit nonplussed by it, although it was very interesting. And uh, Tony was on great form that night, night, I remember. So, yeah. What else have we got in there? um, We've got another Fool's Paradise. We've got a... Oh, we've got a couple of Hackney Empire flyers. Uh, Oh, and that's one with... Ah, so this is a Christmas... It's a Christmas flyer for 1987... With oh, there we Otis Cannelloni, John Hoagley, and, and, and uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Bailey. The, the reason it says Andrew Benson Bailey is because he had a character called Frederick Benson. Okay. And uh, this, we will come back to this actually because it's yeah. it, it, the title of that show is the Big Bag Christmas Show or Xmas Show. Mm. We'll, we'll definitely mention that again in the episode. Um, it's more Hackney Empire. So I don't have a date on these. So, oh, that's interesting. Look, Hackney Empire doesn't have a year, but it's the Friday the 26th and Saturday the 27th of June. The return of Harry Enfield Stavros as Harry Enfield's first flush of fame. He was very famous in the, in the, in the 80s. I mean, obviously still is, but, you know, he was really like Michael McIntyre famous okay. in a way. Um, and his special guest is Bing Hitler. Now, Bing Hitler was a pseudonym and sort of alter ego of Craig Ferguson, who later moved to North America and became quite a well-known figure over there, although he's not well-known over here. He had his own chat show kind of thing. Okay, yeah. yeah. Like one of those late-night kind yeah. of things. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I saw Harry Enfield at the Sheffield City Hall in about 1988, at the height of the loads of money craze, and his support act was Craig Ferguson, by that point going under his own name of Craig Ferguson. And he was very good. I remember him, you know, sort of down-the-line stand-up, but, but, you know, very good. Hmm. So, so how does this? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? As, as, a, as a, you know, as an object, how does this differ? How does it compare with these other examples that we have over here of publicity materials? Do you think? Uh, well, in some ways, it doesn't, in that it's kind of ephemeral material that wasn't really meant to last right. too much longer, I guess. But I suppose there's the the added sense in this is that you bring it along to the show and you get something. Yeah. As opposed to just kind of finding out about the show and going along. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me a little bit of some of the stuff we've talked about in relation to Josie Long, going back to our first episode about the orange. Mm. That, you know, there's a thing where, you know, the act gives... There's always an element of sharing, I think, in comedy because you're trying to get the audience to share your enjoyment of an idea or your, your, your amusement at something. 
uh, or you know there's the references that you share I mean in, in observational comedy the idea is you're sharing a common experience they go oh yeah I've had that experience too but what I find very interesting is when the comedians actually literally share objects and Josie you know used to give out oranges to members of the audience mm. who were trying hard or stickers yeah. or whatever and in this they get sweeties in their in their paper bag we talked about um did you mention Sarah Millican in the, yeah of giving out badges and Mark Thomas also it's not really gifting things to people but we've got a few examples of his shows where the audience member has to kind of contribute an idea yes so we've got a couple so his manifesto show um, for example yeah absolutely so I like this idea of the exchange of, of, of ideas or objects between performer and audience uh, for me that's an exciting thing about stand-up comedy or you know any form of live comedy that acknowledges the audience now, I've done some research on this show, and the date... Actually, just before we move on to that, though, I've, I've got to read this out. This is presumably reproduced from the Fringe brochure for that year. It's Venue 67, the Comedy Boom, which is the t- uh, two-pickety place, top of Leith Walk, and it's got a number for tickets. And the show is called John Hegley and the Popticians, Otis Cannelloni, the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. And it's got some quotes. I won't read all of them out, but there's a couple of really good ones. I actually laughed out loud, and that was John Peel Radio 1. <laughs> and that made me laugh because John Peel was just one of those people who was so deadpan, you can't imagine him laughing out loud. But the fact that he did was obviously a, a sign that it was extremely funny. And that's followed by Simply Magnificent, Simply Magnificent, Edinburgh Evening News. And finally, the one at the end, a happy, fun variety show, except for the bits about the misery of human existence. And that's apparently said by a Welsh person. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, yeah, we've got. I found in the Guardian, in a, a digital archive of the Guardian, um, a preview for this show uh, that was published in the edition from the twenty fifth of August, nineteen eighty eight, and it, descri- it has the title of the show: John Hegley and the Politicians, Otis Cannelloni, and it says the juggling skills of Otis Cannelloni combined with satire, music, and support from the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. But as you pointed out before we started this record, what's weird is it doesn't specifically mention the Popticians, which was no. actually notionally the headline act. Mm. Um, also, we should talk about the Popticians briefly, because John Hegley is a poet and uh, a, uh, who, who works in, in print and as a performer. And he writes, he's primarily associated with comic poems, and he, he was a sort of stand-up poet, I suppose, on, on the alternative cabaret circuit of the 80s, and now you know, tours, theatres and so on uh, as, as an act in his own right. And it's very good. I mean, highly recommended. Um, but he's been involved in various different acts. And there's a, an article I found again in The Guardian, although a much more recent one. This is from 2003. And it celebrates what was then John's 50th birthday. And it just looks back at him. It's an article by Stephanie Merritt called Stanza and Deliver. See what they've done there with the, with the wordplay. Um, but, it, but it says this. Uh, the performance aspects of his career began later at 28 when he took up busking in shopping centres. Collaborations with fellow buskers evolved into a group called the Popticians, which performed in Covent Garden and sang songs largely about wearing glasses. And this takes us nicely back to another earlier episode, the one with J.J. Waller, mm. um, who'd also been a veteran of the, the Covent Garden street theatre scene, a pioneer, I should say, and mentioned uh, John Hegley and the Popticians when he was talking about the other people who were around there. And like John Hegley, he moved from playing the streets to playing indoors in cabaret venues. Um, and uh, we have a recording, I believe, of the Comedy Store it's undated I think but an early comedy store 
uh, performance or show uh, where it was still the gong. Hmm. You know, very early then. Very early. Yeah. Uh, and it was compared by uh, Tony Allen and John makes an appearance in that. Mm-hmm. And so you, we've got, you know, an early unpublished recording of John. Sounding very different, actually, from the familiar John Hegley we know. Uh, a bit more aggressive, a bit more, not as school teacherly, I think. But, um, and doing songs on the mandolin, I think. Okay. Yeah, so, so uh, what, what do you think the Brown Paper Bag Brothers... I mean, there's a publicity photo. Do you want to describe that? Well, so on... There's lots of photos on the bag. There's... Um, John Hegley and the Popticians, two of them actually, um, Otis Cannelloni and then a picture of the Brown Paper Bag Brothers, which is a picture of two men, I presume, yeah, um, men's feet covered by a huge brown paper bag. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so, so uh, the Brown Paper Bag Brothers were John Hegley, as we've sort of suggested, and I think his name is John Otis, but Otis Cannelloni... Mm-hmm. Uh, real name, it's, the real name's definitely John, I'm pretty sure it's John Otis. And so they did a double act as well. So he has all these different permutations, you know, he can be part of this comedic pop band, uh, which did great songs, incidentally. The, my my favourite, and it is, it is their, you know, probably their best known song, Eddie Don't Like Furniture, <laughs> which is apparently written about another comic. Okay. Um, but, um, and then uh, he's, 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 he's also, you know, John Hegley as a solo act, and then uh, half of the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. And I've brought with me some books, because it's quite hard to find information about the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. They are mentioned in a book Jack D wrote, and one that Alan Davis wrote, but I've not got either of those to hand. What I have got is a book called Sit Down Comedy, which was sort of edited by Malcolm Hardy and John Fleming. That's what it says. I'm not saying that. It says sort of edited by. And in the introduction written by the late Malcolm Hardy, he talks about starting his his infamous club, the Tunnel Club, um, in 1984, which was at the south end of the Dartford Tunnel. And he remembers John Hegley performing there in the opening week. And this is what he says about John Hegley. He has been performing on the circuit for as long as anyone can remember. At one time, he was in the Brown Paper Bag Brothers, which comprised of him and a man called Otis Cannelloni. They were both called John on stage and both carried brown paper bags. They said things like, my bag's better than your bag, and tried to outdo each other on the bag front. Quite funny. <laughs> That's literally what he says. You know, at, the point, at that point, I'm going, I'm intrigued, tell me more, and all we get is quite funny. Uh, I also brought another book. This was the first book to be published about... Uh, alternative comedy and it was published in 1989 uh, to around the, the 10th anniversary of the opening of the comedy store and there's a whole section on John Hegley and it is indeed it confirms the comedian magician John Otis who works as Otis Cannelloni Otis with a, an S yeah his state on his back he's Otis with a I, Z I believe the correct spelling is the Z but mm. a lot of people it's a commonly made error uh, also if you look at it the number of N's and L's vary okay. <laughs> so the correct number of N's two the correct number of L's two um, but it, it describes here the act uh, he developed with Otis a routine which grew into the brown paper bag brothers this involved a lot of jokes about paper bags giving the audience one each and getting them to pop them all together mm. and bags with drawings on them, brackets, a tea, tea bag, a knight on a bag held over his head, overnight bag, and <laughs> so on. So loads of bag gags. Uh, so in other words, the, the publicity material here doesn't just um, 
exists as a novelty. You know, it's unusual to have a flyer printed on a paper, on a brown mm-hmm. paper bag. And also, as you say, in, involve audience involve the audience because they can take it along and get sweeties in it. But it's also part of the act as well. Mm. And what I thought I would do um, is. I thought we could um, look at some more press uh, about Brown Paper Bag Brothers. So I went through various archives and uh, I found something in the stage on the 27th of November 1986 and it's a little article called Hackney's Got Bottle and it's about the Hackney Empire reopening because obviously that was brought back from uh, decades of being dark as a theatre, being a bingo hall and TV studio and all kinds of things. And it became a home for new variety. And I think the Brown Paper Bag Brothers or John Hagley, the politicians, would be classic new variety acts. Anyway, it flags up that the Brown Paper Bag Brothers are, about to, are going to be doing a Christmas show in 1986. We then have one from 87, and it's another thing about uh, the Hackney Empire and, and new variety. And it mentions the Brown Paper Bag Brothers as one of the coming acts. And that's the flyer that we've got. I yeah, I believe that's it is, because yeah. that's 1987, and that's, uh, we've got another article referencing that in a sec. This is again, this is again from 87. This is from uh, uh, The Independent from October 87, and, and it's, it just mentions um, the real variety show at the Hackney Empire tonight, and it says this. This is exciting. A thousand paper bags will be provided for use by the audience in preparation for the reunion of the Brown Paper Bag Brothers, more recently seen appearing singly as John Hegley and Otis Cannelloni. So what's interesting is by 87, they're already, it's already talking about them reviving it, so we can take it as read that it was an earlier kind of an act. But also, they've got to get hold of a thousand paper bags for this. Um, and uh, yeah, so getting the audience to pop them together in the, in the Hackney Empire, presumably they get a thousand because they expect a thousand people in the audience. This is a, an article from the Times. Well, it's not. It's actually TV listings or TV and radio. And there was a program on Radio Four called "At Least It's Live" about, as it describes it, people who continue to perform in the theatre, although they found neither fame nor fortune. And the whole episode there. This is from twenty first of November eighty seven. Was about the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. Okay. And here we have an article. Do you want to read the title of that? Christmas in a Brown Paper Bag. And it says Boxing Day sees perhaps the best Christmas special with the big bag Christmas show at the Hackney Empire. Here, droning poet John Hegley rejoins Otis Cannelloni in a rustling revival of the Brown Paper Bag Brothers. They're followed by laughing juggler Steve Rawlings and Mr Happiness himself, Norman Lovett. And that's that must mm. be yes. the same show. And in fact, it lists yeah. some other acts there, doesn't it? Yes, there's also the Polpero Flyers. Or Perry Flies? Have I yeah, said that right? I, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Featuring Melanie Harold and Ollie Blanchflower. And we mentioned Andrew Benson Bailey. Yeah. Uh, and Steve Rawlings, I remember his act very well. He's a very good juggler. Um, so I wonder, because it also says three small giants of comedy. So are there, is that the three there? I think what so. What about Norman Lovett? Yeah. I don't know. Mm. Norman Lovett's a fantastic deadpan mm. comedian. I mean, you know, that would have been a great show about. Oh, and The Howlers as well. Sorry. The Howlers, which as is... your pit orchestra. Pit orchestra being, a, you know, the old theatrical term, mm. consciously, I suspect, looking back to the that mm. venue's history as a, as a variety theatre in the classic age of variety. Then we've got one here from 1988 with... The Brown Paper Bag Brothers being on a on a uh, amnesty gig at Nottingham Playhouse called the Secret Policeman's Steamy Revelations, 
and he was on with the likes of Otis Cannelloni, presumably as a solo act, Jenny Eclair, socialist conjurer Ian Savile, who I saw really recently at uh, Jim Barclay's 70th birthday gig in aid of War on Want, which was excellent. And Kevin Cisse, who was a fantastic comedian and singer, uh, kind of like a northern uh, Billy Bragg in some ways. It's, that's sort of vaguely the territory of his music. Um, very deadpan, very funny. Yeah, very good. So that was, it was what's been described as an orgy of alternative comedy, that gig. And then we have, um, this, is, this is from the um, 10th anniversary of the Comedy Store. They put on a series of shows, one of which was Tony Allen. Uh, and it said he is sharing in the store's 10th birthday celebrations, taking one half of the bill while lovely glasses comic and poet John Hegley rustles up his partnership with Otis Cannelloni to reform the Brown Paper Back Brothers. Great fun. As a, great fun is only two words, but somehow it's a little bit kinder than quite yeah. funny. Um, and that, so that's yeah, that was what I found in the cool. in the archives. But what we also have is uh, John uh, last year very kindly came in and allowed me to interview him, and I asked him about the logistics of getting a flyer printed on a paper bag, and indeed getting the flyers that you might need to give out to the audience in sufficient numbers to make the act work. And uh, we're going to hear a clip of that now. Edit. Um, can I just um, pick this up? <laughs> this is such a cool item. So this is a brown paper bag that we have here. Um, John Hegley and the Popticians, Otis Cannelloni, Brown Paper Bag Brothers. What was the story behind this? Um, this was... This was a show that we did at the, the Comedy Boom. 19, I was speaking to John about this the other day, but 1988. Um, John looks very young there. Um, this was taken... Oh, I love doing this photograph. We made this, we made this brown paper bag. It, was a, so it still looks good. It? Um, and so we, we did the show. We did the show together... Um, I I think I was was I the host. John did a bit on his own. We did the brown, brown paper bag brother. So it was a little cabaret that, around our our acts. Um, I think maybe not everybody because it was. Well, I think you only had an hour. The, the sort of Edinburgh hour type thing. And I don't really think we had quite enough to develop things. Mm. And maybe what we maybe we should have tried to make an hour in a different way but what we did was we did snippets of what we had it was it went fine um on a friday we didn't have many in the rest of the week could I ask a stupid question about brown paper bag brothers you used a lot of brown paper bags in the act yes i once interviewed a variety act called joan rhodes who was a strong woman she used to come out in fishnets and basque and things and challenge men in the audience to feats of strength and one of the things she would do was bend a steel bar yep. around her neck or around her knee so she had to get a lot of steel bars. She also tore up telephone directories, so she had to source these, and she was doing 12 shows a week in variety. How did you get enough bags to do the act? Um, we used to have a supplier. <laughs> <laughs> a man from Stamford Hill would bring the bags around to my house. That was it. It was craft uh, bags, they were called. Not that that's the name, but, he, but he, we've, we looked up, I think, in the yellow pages. Um, there weren't any brown pages in those days, and we found out that the man, and he would bring them round, I'd bring him up, and he'd bring 500 brown paper bags. <laughs> and then we had these print, and so, and we got, some of them were printed 
like, and I can't remember who printed this, and we got one lot were printed. We did the first time we did the show together, it was 1986, just John and I did the, the hour, and we got them printed in Glasgow. And I was saying to, to, saying to him on the other day when I saw him on Tuesday, um, it was amazing that we, we were pre- preparing for our Edinburgh show and getting them printed. Somehow it was really lovely that they were printed in Scotland. Edit. So one of the things about that, um, as I say to John, it, it, you can trace that thing of the comedian having to take responsibility for getting all the bits of the act that they're going to use back to Variety, at least, and probably before that. But Variety was a, was a form of sort of popular theatre that grew out of the music hall. Music hall started in uh, the mid-19th century, and then uh, the early 20th century, it sort of changed in form from being a one-long show to being a tighter show performed twice a night. And, and it's, by that point, the venues it appeared in had sort of mutated from being like a giant pub with a stage to being like a, well, like the Hackney Empire, you know, a, a effectively the same as a normal theatre, proscenium arch and, you know, ranked seating and so on. But the, 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 a variety bill would be made up of perhaps nine or ten acts, something like that. Um, and each one of them was effectively a separate production. So this is, a, I wrote a book called Britain Had Talent about variety theatre. I'm going to read a, a little bit from them, from a little section called No One Produced Them. The main reason why variety was such a precarious profession was that each act was effectively an independent production. Vera Lynn explains, and I've got a quote from Vera Lynn here, you did your own thing, Like a singer myself, I used to carry my own pianist always, meaning she took a pianist with her to the theatre rather than using the one in the theatre orchestra. And you told them where you wanted the piano and the microphone, and my husband used to keep an eye on the lights and things, amber for this or a pink for that, you know. So you were your own company, just within yourself or your family. That's the end of the quote. And then it goes on. Such independence was a source of pride, as Valentine Napier pointed out. This is a quote from Valentine Napier. Variety performers still felt quite distinct from other branches of the theatrical profession. Rightly so. They were independent performers. No one produced them. Their weekly salaries were four or five times as much as a ballet dancer or legit actor. So they're in charge of everything, but what that means is they've got to get all the stuff they need for the act. Mm. Um, So were their salaries higher because they didn't have to pay... Like an agent, or it wasn't. It wasn't so much that because they, you know, many of them would go through an agent. Uh, but it was more that you know they, they the act was self contained. So when they arrived at the theatre, they would have with them the lighting plans. Uh, they would bring all the costumes and props they needed. If there were animals involved in the act, they would be in charge, and they would pay for the animals to be looked after and housed in the day when they weren't performing. Um, you know, if they had uh, scenery, they might have to travel with that. Uh, all of that they would they would produce or they would commission somebody to make it or they would make it themselves and they would take it around the theatre with them so whereas if you're an actor in a play you know your costume's provided the mm-hmm. text is provided you know the everything is provided it, you know the, well there's a the thing here um, that, that they would even take round they wouldn't provide the music because there would be a pit orchestra as we just mentioned but they would have to bring the band parts so they would have to bring with them the, the music that would be played and it says here, to pick up a, from page 32 of Britain Had Talent, in the smaller theatres, acts could get away with providing one copy of the music and getting the pit orchestra to busk the rest. But the number ones, in other words, the most important theatres, insisted that the music should be fully arranged with band parts for each instrument. 
as an article in the Times pointed out, some of these would have been redundant for most of the time, as only the biggest theatres would, ha would have a full range of instruments. And this is a quote from the Times. Parts for oboe, horns and bassoons can be carried around for years without ever having the pleasure of finding players for these instruments. So it's a thing where, you know, you're, you know, the, you are, an, it's like, if let's say there are nine acts on the bill. That's nine independent productions. And the theatre is just, well, it's provided the, the, the technical support, I suppose. And it's compiled that bill from those independent productions. But if you think about it, that's kind of the same for stand-up comedians. If, when I, I used to have props in my act, and I, it, I was solely responsible for them. Nobody else would have any responsibility for that. And if there were ones that I knew I'd need to have, a, you know, a new one for each show, I'd have to make sure I'd made enough yeah. to have it. I remember once going around Birmingham, desperately trying to find custard pie foam for a particularly stupid gag that I had, and not actually be able to get, get it in the end, and having to find a way around the problem. Now, in the conversation with... Um, uh, with John Hegley, I mentioned Joan Rhodes, the strong woman who, who appeared in Variety, and we have a clip of her talking to me in an interview for part of the research for Britain Had Talent, and she talks about the business of getting what she needed for her act. How difficult was it when you were starting to work in Variety, things like getting the lighting plot sorted out and the sheet music? Oh, I did it all. Right. I did it all. I, I got the music from, you know, I asked questions. Mm. I used to go into the, I think it was the ABC in Charing Cross Road. A lot of variety people went there. So I got to know where to get my uh, music. And I had Sweet and Lovely. <laughs> sweet and Lovely. And then I would come on as though I was going to do a striptease. And, you know, because I, I, I made my own costumes then. It cost me half a crown to make a costume. A black costume. I, I should have photographs here. And I made... Um, uh, what happened was there was a shop in um, near Piccadilly, anywhere, and I used to call it the Naughty Nicker Shop. And it was obviously, you know, what it was for. And they had these Basque things, which are still fashionable now. So I bought one of those, and then I just made a black skirt on elastic... And one leg coming through so I could use it for that. I, di I did everything until I got fairly well known. And in the first show, I got £17 a week for 12 shows. And um, I, w I grumbled a little bit about it because I had to pay my digs and I had to buy my props. I used to have to buy, buy telephone books. I used to buy the big, great big ones like that. Mm. I've, got, I've got two or three here. And... Um, they cost fortunes each at the time. I used to go to a waste paper place. You know, I, I sort of was very... Somehow, I, I just did it. Mm. And then I used to get the steel bars at the, at the place in um, near the Angel, a very big... They, they must have thought I was quite mad. There's this place where they sold girders and things, and I would go in and say, can I have some mild steel three feet long? And they would do it, you know, they'd cut it for me and they'd laugh about it. So that was Joan Rhodes. <laughs> she sounds really incredible. She was yeah. incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was a proper eccentric. She'd, somebody who'd, who'd known hard times when she was in her teens, she, she ended up without any kind of parental figure in her life and, having, and living on the streets for a while, uh, living on her wits. That's how she learnt the strong 
woman act. She 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 started hanging out with street performers, and she they didn't teach her it. She she used to watch and, and copy what they did. Um, and she, she you know she was I think she was a loner even within the variety profession. Um, but I mean she had friends. I mean she she was friends with Quentin Crisp, for example, uh, mm-hmm. quite close friend of Quentin Crisp. Um, but uh, it was it was it was it was a real privilege meeting her. I, I, I interviewed her. She she when she greeted me by explaining, I'm sorry. When people ask my age, I say I'm somewhere between eighty and death. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> she she was eighty nine uh, when I did the interview, and um, unfortunately she died shortly afterwards. And it was a shame because she had sort of said if if I, were, I was back in London, I would be welcome to come around and play Scrabble with her again. Oh. Um, but I didn't ever have the cha- that chance. Although I did play her at Scrabble after doing the interview, she did beat me. So uh, uh, yeah, it was it was incredible. I, one of the things about using that clip in this episode, I wasn't completely sure about what how to get permission because um, you know obviously Joan died some years ago. Um, so I emailed Roy Hood and he said, to my knowledge, Joan hasn't any living relatives, and he said he thought if it was our own recording. Uh, he said, "I think you'd be able to use it as you wish." So that's why we've why we've used it, and partly in tribute to Joan. He also says this uh, in passing, which is quite good fun. Oddly enough, Tessie O'Shea, who was a sort of humorous singer in, uh, she was known as Two Ton Tessie O'Shea. She was a larger lady who played um, ukulele and things. Oddly enough, Tessie O'Shea used a paper bag at the end of a play I saw her in. In the finale, she told the audience to look in the programme and take out the brown paper bag that was inside it. She then showed us all how to fold it a certain way and proceeded to demonstrate how if we scraped it in a certain way, it sounded like a ukulele. She was a great uke player. We all joined in with her as she played the uke. And we all joined in with her song, All You've Got To Do Is Take A Paper Bag. So there. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you can find a clip of her doing something very similar on an early 70s TV show called The Wheel Tappers and Shunters uh, Social Club on YouTube. I think there's a clip of her doing something like that with paperbacks. I'm, and I'm very intrigued as to how, how you'd yeah, fold it in the right way to make the sound. I think I'm going to Google it then. I think, I think you should definitely Google it. I think what you do is you, it's just, it, you sort of fold it so it's ridges and yeah. then you just do like that. It doesn't oh, obviously okay. make the tone of the yeah. tune, but it, it makes a kind of percussive noise like a ukulele. Cool. And now, talking of music... So yes, um, something happened as part of the preparation for this episode and I didn't foresee it happening and even just telling you about it now, I can't help <laughs> smiling. Uh, basically, uh, we had to get John's permission to use the clip of him that we heard earlier and in addition to him giving that permission, he also sent, he, he emailed me with a poem about the archive and about the, the brown paper bag and that was cool. Like, I went home and I wrote in my diary, the best thing happened. I had a poem from John Hegley about the archive. And I've got a printout of that in my diary at home. And as if that wasn't good enough, after that, he sent me a recording of him sort of singing or, or, or reciting the poem to music. And uh, we're going to finish the episode with that. Before we go into it, I need to thank Adam Bradbury, who recorded the uh, the song for John so that's this is what we'll finish with
Late at night, in 88, we played the basement bar Up the top of Broughton Street and down the stairs We are John and John and Keith and Sue are fringing for all photographed in black and white on brown A busy set of images How busy was it down there in the midweek pretty slow but weekends we would tend to see our audiences grow and one night on a Saturday imprinted on me mind it's full and full of happiness the show this bag defined and what does the brown paper bag think of all of this I never thought I'd make it to an archive In fact I never thought I'd think But look I did I sensed I was more suited to a vegetable stall To be stuffed and carted home And then got rid of When you first heard that, what did you think? I thought it was lovely. Like, I liked the song, the tune, but the kind of the way he talks about the brown paper bag and how it feels about being in an archive, I just I found it quite touching. <laughs> like, it, it made it all seem really important again, like the kind of the archive work <laughs> that we do. I know, that's the thing, you know, sometimes you think, well, what are we doing here? It's incredibly nerdy, you know, like yeah. we're connect, collecting all these items that I find personally incredibly exciting. And I know some other people do, but other people will go, well, it's just a notebook or something, yeah. or it's, in this case, it's just a brown paper bag. But it's so much more than that. Um, I should just say, when I interviewed John, he's, he's the most... I, I really like him. I, he's, the most ex, he's the most exceptional human being. He, he, um, I was interviewing him, and he started playing his instrument. I can't remember what it's called. It's like a mandolin. He does play mandolin as well, but this was something slightly different, I think. And he said, uh, could you ask me the next question to this accompaniment? <laughs> fabulous. Like, like, I just think that he's somebody who sees the world from a different perspective. And that's a classic definition of a comedian. Anyway, this podcast is not just about us telling you things. It's also about you getting involved. Get involved! There are many ways you can get involved in this podcast, but first you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us. Our email address is standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen. We're also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. And we've also got a Facebook page to search for history of comedy in several objects. Uh, so the first way of getting involved is go to the catalogue online, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. Uh, we'll talk about all nominated objects in a future episode. That's the vanilla version of getting involved. And if you do that, please do remember to include a postal address for you. And we will send you two badges, one for the podcast and one for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. 
The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to come into the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive at the University of Kent to look at material for yourself. If you record a short piece about one of the objects you see and send us the audio, we'll feature it in a future episode. And for that level of involvement, you get um, a limited edition stand-up comedy archive t-shirt and also a podcast badge. And the stupidest way of getting involved is to record your own version of our theme tune and we'll use the ones we like in a future episode. I should just say, please leave us a review on iTunes because we really need reviewing on iTunes. So if you do that, send us a screen grab of your review and, uh, and an address and we will send you a podcast badge. A history of comedy in several objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hulse.